Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is October 2021 General Conference Recap Saturday Morning Session. Thanks for coming back to listen to another episode. Today's is going to be the first in a series of five where I'll go over the talks and ideas presented in general conference. I'll do my best to be fair about my analysis, both in the good and the bad and the somewhere in between. I had originally intended to do this with Paul, who was on an episode previously with me where we discussed an Elder Renlund talk. Due to scheduling conflicts, he wasn't able to come on. Perhaps I'll bring him on for one of the later sessions, but for this episode, it's just me and my thoughts on this one. The Saturday morning session had a number of speakers from the Quorum of the Twelve in it. Started out with Russell M. Nelson. We had Jeffrey R. Holland, Ulysses Suarez, D. Todd Christofferson, and Dallin H. Oaks all speak in this session. So it was full of members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the First Presidency. We also had um, one of the four women speakers, Bonnie H. Corden, spoke in this session, and a handful of members of the 70. The opening remarks by President Nelson were very plain, nothing really of note in this particular session. The only thing that he did say in this was a couple minutes in, if you're looking at the, at the written versions, it's like the third or fourth paragraph, he makes a comment, he says, we're still dealing with the ravages of COVID-19 and its variants. We thank you for following our counsel and the advice of medical experts and government officials in your own communities. Very subtly here, he's encouraging the membership of the church to listen to their local government officials and the medical experts on COVID-19 and to listen to them. This subject has been a heated debate both in and out of the Mormon church. This was a very subtle way for the prophet to kind of push the membership towards getting the vaccine is what it sounded like. Other than that, there wasn't too much of note in this talk. He just encouraging people to, to listen with the spirit. Not a whole lot negative or positive that I could really say, just kind of normal. The next speaker was Jeffrey R. Holland, and this talk they're calling The Greatest Possession. Right off the bat, I think there's some, some really ironic comments coming out of Elder Holland's mouth. So I'll read his first paragraph. In this, he cites Mark 10, 17 through 22. Uh, he opened with, with this. The scriptures speak of a rich young ruler who ran to Jesus, knelt at his feet, and with genuine sincerity, asked the master... What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? After reviewing a long list of commandments, this fellow had faithfully kept. Jesus told the man to sell all of his belongings, give the proceeds to the poor, take up his cross, and follow him. The boldness of this directive caused the young ruler, in spite of his expensive sandals, to get cold feet, and he went away sorrowing, because the scripture says, 
he had great possessions. Obviously, this is an important cautionary tale about the uses of wealth and the needs of the poor. <laughs> As I read this, I can't help but think of the, the $100 billion Ensign Peak accounts, plus the vast tracts of land that they own in Florida, and the countless very expensive temples all across the globe. When those that sit at the top of an organization like this make references to selling all your possessions and giving them to the poor and the needy, it is very hypocritical of them. They do absolutely nothing with the wealth that they have. If they want to be a healthier organization, that needs to be addressed. That being said, uh, Elder Holland here did have one point that he made that I actually really appreciated. It's about halfway through the talk. He's addressing one of the problems that we see in our world today. He says, friends, in our present moment, we find all manner of divisions and subdivisions, sets and subsets, digital tribes and political identities with more than enough hostility to go around. Might we ask ourselves if a higher and holier life, to use the President Russell M. Nelson's phrase, is something we could seek? When doing so, we would do well to remember that stunning period in the Book of Mormon in which those people asked and answered that question so affirmatively. From there, he goes on to cite 4th Nephi 1 and a couple of verses from, from that uh, section. And and frankly, those are, those are some of the best verses in the Book of Mormon. And it's presenting an idea that, that, that we as a people need to grasp better. So Elder Holland goes on to cite a couple of verses, but he, he actually skips some that would be a little bit damning to the church. Particularly the verses in this section that talk about the common law and uh, having no poor among the among the general population. The verses that he does cite here talk. Um, he talks about not having strife or envyings, um, that there was no contention among the people. As I said when I first started talking about this, that's that's a concept that that I think is really important. I wish that the church would hammer on this a little bit more. The good part of this talk, I want to address and say, yes, he's trying to encourage the membership to be more accepting, to have less contention between different uh, perspectives, religious, political, all of that. I think this is a very good message. He skips over the verses where it talks about taking care of the poor, using the wealth that you have to, and how these people lived a common law and everyone was taken care of. So when he comes to his conclusion in the next paragraph, he talks about the, the love of God being the impetus for this. After going over 4th Nephi 1 for a minute, he says, What is the key to this breakthrough in contented, happy living? It is embedded in the text in one sentence. And here he cites 4th Nephi 1, uh, 15. The love of God did dwell in the hearts of the people. And here Elder Holland is talking again. When the love of God sets the tone for our own lives, for our, own, for our relationships, to each other and ultimately our feeling for all humankind, then old distinctions, limiting labels, and artificial divisions begin to pass away, and peace increases. That idea is so important. We are humans first. I wish he'd, he'd elucidated better on this point, but 
when we firmly place ourselves in humanity as a part of it, outside of national borders, outside of political affiliations, religious ideologies, when we recognize that we are all humans, if you're someone who's inclined to believe in Mormonism or you know religion, you could say we are all children of God. This idea should be a uniting idea instead of a divisive one. But there is an uncomfortable implication about this concept. So he's saying that according to 4th Nephi 1.15, he says that the love of God did dwell in the hearts of the people. And that was their motive for taking care of each other. I don't think it would be a logical stretch to apply this same to the church and say that the church does not love its members or the world because it is hoarding the money that it could use for everyone's benefit. If the church followed these passages in 4th Nephi 1, where it talks about a common law, taking care of the poor and the needy, and that being the way that they achieved peace, they're not following it. How much good could the Mormon church do in the world if they only started using a fraction of that money? Let's just, you know, say if they took 10% of their wealth and used it to make a better world, that would be so much money. And it would be a demonstration of love for the world. I think, I think it's ironic that he started, he started out talking about wealth and giving up what you own in order to follow God. He cited a chapter that talks specifically about where there were no poor among them. He skipped those verses, but then cited around them to illustrate the point that it's the love of God that's the impetus for these things. To this listener, you could follow that same line of thought and come to a conclusion that the Mormon church does not love its people or the world. To top things off, he ends, and when he's, you know, bearing his testimony, he starts it off, he says, Brothers and sisters, I pray we will succeed where that rich young man failed, that we will take up the cross of Christ, however demanding it might be, regardless of the issue and regardless of the cost. When I hear a statement like that and understand the financial situation that the church is in, it's disingenuous to me. If only they would live by the teachings that they're trying to impose on the membership. The next speaker uh, was Bonnie H. Corden. Her talk was called Come Unto Christ and Don't Come Alone. I don't have much criticism of her talk. A lot of it is about uh, faith claims and belief claims. She talked about our divine identity uh, and, and what the Mormons teach is the, that everyone is a child of God and you know that God loves us our divine identity, and our eternal purpose, giving some stories. Uh, most of it, at least to me as I listened, wasn't, wasn't too out of the ordinary, and nothing jumped out at me. And, and frankly, I don't want to attack beliefs. If Sister Corden here wants to, if she wants to believe these things, that's fine. For me, I would require a little bit more evidence on some of the claims that she's making. I don't like the addition that she put onto um, this come unto Christ. 
It's a reference to a talk that President Nelson gave in October 2020 called Let God Prevail. And in it, President Nelson makes the, the comment of that we need to come unto Christ, come now, and not to come alone. One of the, one of the dramatic changes that has come over me as I deconstructed religion and, and left the church, and, and frankly, this is something that my wife actually has experienced as well as she has uh, shifted more towards a nuanced belief in the church. It's this idea that the way religions push missionary work on the world is so disingenuous. There's a lot of problems that go along with this. I may need to do a full episode talking about my thoughts on it, but one of the issues with missionary work is that it is a, it's a form of mental colonization that Christianity has done across the globe. These Christian nations would go and conquer the lands of wherever they were traveling and colonizing, and then they would conquer the minds of the people that were there and convert them all to Christianity and strip them of their belief systems that they held before. I don't like that. That isn't to say that, that I don't think people should convert to Christianity if they feel so inclined. But this, this push that the church has of being the one and only true church and the only arbiter of truth, and you have to come through Mormonism to access deity, I don't think that's healthy. And frankly, it's off-putting to people when they are introduced to these subjects. She goes on to say, after citing some more stories out of the Book of Mormon, she says, Every time I read this, I ask myself, who will I bring to Christ? And then she says, who will you bring? Many of us who lived the Mormon experience sat through a gospel doctrine class, elders quorum, high priest quorum, when it was a thing, relief society, where whoever was the ward mission leader got up and asked someone, he said, hey, I need, you know, they asked for volunteers to give out the Book of Mormon and, and to share their testimony with a friend. For me, it was painfully awkward. As an introvert, I really don't like talking to strangers. <laughs> I would just dread the idea of bringing up religion to my friends or coworkers. It just gave me extreme anxiety. It is something that I'm so glad that I've put behind me when I left the church. There wasn't much of note in the rest of her talk. She kind of hammers this point for a bit longer, talking about looking for the people that, that you will bring to Christ with you. The next talk was, from, was by Elder Suarez, uh, the Savior's abiding compassion. Elder Suarez starts by quoting Luke 7 and the, the story, the woman that was considered a sinner. This isn't the woman that was um, caught sinning. She's washing Jesus's feet, kissing his feet, and she washed his feet with her tears and anointed them. This is one of my favorite teachings that Christ had. I think it's an excellent point, something that, that uh, I'm glad that Elder Suarez talked about. He, in, in his talk, he's condemning, he's condemning the holier-than-thou attitude and encouraging people to see everyone for who they are and who they can be. He then relates this story to interacting with everyone around you, recognizing how Jesus would look at them and how Jesus would love them, and incorporating that, that philosophy in your daily practice. For me, I can appreciate a message like this, even though I don't believe in God or Jesus. 
the idea of recognizing the humanity in your neighbor, that's a powerful message. So I, I really like that he's pushing this forward. It's one of my favorite things that Jesus taught and encouraged. This talk by Elder Suarez was probably one of the best in the whole sessions of General Conference. All he's doing is covering the same concept. He's encouraging the members to recognize the humanity in other people, recognize they have trials, and he's encouraging them to be compassionate and loving. And so I think, hands down, Elder Suarez, this was, this was an awesome talk. The next speaker in the morning session was Elder D. Todd Christofferson. His talk was called The Love of God. This one was a little bit more problematic. He's talking about commandments and how the commandments are a way that we can feel the love of God more profoundly in our lives. On one hand, I don't want to criticize a belief claim in, in some of the things that, that they believe. But on, on the other hand, some of these commandments are arbitrary and have nothing to do with morality. So for example, a commandment of not drinking coffee or tea, that's not a moral question. Let me put the stipulation. If the way the, the coffee beans or the tea leaves are harvested is done in an immoral way, or is done harming the environment or harming the workers or the people that are harvesting it, then yes, consuming it would be immoral. But on its own, coffee and tea, either drinking coffee or abstaining from it, that is not a moral question. Sorry, I got on a tangent. <laughs> the membership of the church and when religion is discussed, the idea of sin and morality, they get conflated where when a religion is talking about something that is a sinful behavior, oftentimes these sins, as I just explained, have nothing to do with morality. So a talk like this kind of, it kind of irks me. As I listen, it's, it's hard for me to pay attention because I just get kind of frustrated by their presentation. He goes over some ideas that are, that might encourage kind of a toxic perfectionism. Not going to go into that too much, but he, he cites Hugh Nibley. He talks, uh, he cites um, Elder Holland a couple of times, and he's talking about, he's basically presenting a perfectionist worldview where you can't have a single mistake, and it's, it's pretty harmful. There's one more quote from Elder Detard Christofferson's talk that I want to cite. It was a paragraph uh, about halfway through that, that I found deeply troubling. He said, The way of the world, as you know, is anti-Christ, or anything but Christ. Our day is a replay of Book of Mormon history in which charismatic figures pursue unrighteous dominion over others, celebrate sexual license, and promote accumulating wealth as the object of our existence. Their philosophies justify in committing a little sin, or even a lot of sin, but none can offer redemption. That comes only through the blood of the Lamb. The best the anything but Christ or anything but repentance crowd can offer is the unfounded claim that sin does not exist, or that if it exists, it ultimately has no consequences. I can't see that argument getting much traction at the final judgment. I have a couple of thoughts about this. I think it's troubling in a couple of areas. First off, he, he is criticizing the accumulation of wealth and unrighteous dominion over others. And I just, a theme for this morning session is, is them calling out this very thing. They're calling out the accumulation of wealth when the Mormon church 
is doing just that. They're accumulating vast sums of money and doing absolutely nothing with them. It's disingenuous for them to present this idea as something that's vile when they themselves are doing it. He's calling out unrighteous dominion over others when the leaders of the church are speaking out of one side of their mouth and acting a completely different way on the other side of their mouth. And that honestly is the definition of unrighteous dominion. They're teaching the members one way to live, and then they're living a different example of it. All of these men are, are paid a very, these are air quotes, generous stipend, but they do nothing with this money. They take care of themselves, they buy, they buy multiple houses, and they set up their dynasty of church leadership. It's so disheartening for me to listen to things like this and recognize how they're being dishonest with the membership of the church when they teach ideas like this that they know full well they are not following. In this, in this little section, Elder Christofferson is trying to say that the only way to happiness is through repentance and through Christ. And frankly, that is not the case. I have found much more peace in my life after I deconstructed religion and stopped believing in traditional orthodoxy. This phrase that he says that the best the anything but Christ or anything but repentance crowd can offer is the unfounded claim that sin does not exist or that if it exists, it ultimately has no consequences. That's a straw man. There are so many other religions in the world that present excellent philosophies. There are so many other ways of thinking that present a good moral life that he's ignoring completely and presenting a this is the only way argument. If he's talking about the final judgment and if he believes in this final judgment, I think they should be more concerned about how they're acting with unrighteous dominion over the tithing funds of the church, over the vast wealth that the church has instead of calling out other people's walks of life and telling them that when they're judged at the end that it's not going to be good for them perhaps they should focus on bettering themselves before they call out others for the very things that they are doing wrong but he goes on from there in like the last the last little section of his talk or the last last couple of minutes he says I've long been impressed by and have also felt the yearning love of the prophets of God in their warnings against sin. They are not motivated by a desire to condemn. Their true desire mirrors the love of God. In fact, it is the love of God. They love those to whom they are sent, whoever they may be and whatever they may be like. Just as the Lord, his servants do not want anyone to suffer the pains of sin and poor choices. My, my criticism here isn't as much with the idea of belief in a prophet um, receiving revelation. That's fine if they want to believe that. The problem, though, is they in this in this line of reasoning where he has conflated, he has said that the will of God is shown through the prophets. So, for example, the love of God or the, the ideas that God would present are shown through Russell M. Nelson. 
if that were the case, and I'm going to jump back to what I was saying with, with Jeffrey R. Holland, if the Jesus that's presented in the New Testament that's loving and charitable and encourages people to share their, their wealth with each other, if that same God is talking through Russell M. Nelson, the conclusion that you can draw from this is that God wants people to hoard their money and not take care of the general membership of the church or of the world. If the way they are acting with the money that they have, the assets that they have, is how God would act, then then I don't know if I like that God. He presents a question that I think is really harmful for for this kind of toxic perfectionism that I was mentioning. I myself experienced um, some very scrupulous religiosity when I practiced Mormonism. And phrases like this were very harmful for me because I, I was acutely aware of my inability to be perfect and to never make a mistake. Here's the question that Elder Christofferson presents that the membership should ask. He says, in acknowledging that God loves us perfectly, we each might ask, how well do I love God? Can he rely on my love as I rely on his? He cites back to 4th Nephi, just like Elder Holland. He says, here is the solution for our incessantly quarrelsome times, the love of God. Then he cites 4th Nephi 1, says, there was no contention in the land because of the love of God, which did dwell in the hearts of the people. I just think it's hilarious that they're citing this because one of the things that First Nephi talks about is how the membership acted when they had the love of God. And if these men are supposed to be the absolute example of the love of God, I see a disconnect between how they're managing the finances of the church and how this theology is being presented. That's really all I have to say about this one. Uh, it wasn't much more really of note in this talk. The next speaker was Elder Clark G. Uh, Gilbert. He's of the 70. And I, I don't have a ton that I want to say about this particular talk. I don't believe in the church, and so I don't agree with a lot of the things that he says. He presents an idea that I, I agree with. He's talking about struggles that people might face, physical, mental infirmities, all He's presenting uh, the fact that everyone has a different walk in this life and that everyone is presented with a unique challenge. And he, he makes this statement that I think is really good. He says, let me share two areas of encouragement for those facing difficult starting circumstances. First, focus on where you are headed and not where you began. And then he starts talking about this and, and explaining it um, a bit more. And the second one, he says, second, involve the Lord in the process of lifting your slope. And he, he gives stories and he's, he talks about both of these ideas a bit more extensively. To me, there's a kernel of Buddhist ideology there where the path is more important and where you're headed as long as you're trying to live a good life. I think that's the most important thing. And, that, and that's kind of what he's presenting here with a, a Mormon spin. The next speaker was Elder Patricio M. Euphra of the Seventy. Again, not a ton that I really want to touch on here. He talks about some church history. He talks about the pioneers. He talks about Joseph Smith and the first vision. One of the things that they, 
one of the elephants in the room when you have a Latin American speaker going up and talking about Americana and pioneers in the United States. It's just, it goes to this idea that I briefly mentioned a little bit earlier in, in this episode of almost a colonization of the mind where the stories that are being told by these people have nothing to do with their history or the things that happened in their world. And I, I just think it's sad because there is a rich history in all of these places, whether it's a rich Mormon history or a rich cultural history outside of religion. I just wish that the way that the church presents these ideas, it didn't overshadow the rich diversity that everyone brings to the table. But because the Mormon church is, is so rooted in Americana, that Ameri those American stories and ideologies, they disseminate down into these other countries. And, and I, just, I just think that's really sad. The last speaker in the morning session was uh, Dallin H. Oaks, and this one was called The Need for a Church. And he, he makes a claim right off the bat that's just untenable, but we'll, we'll get to it. He always bullet points his, his talks, one, two, three. It's kind of funny. Bullet point one, he starts out and he says, The scriptures God has given Christians in the Bible and in the modern revelation clearly teach the need for a church. Both show that Jesus Christ organized a church and contemplated that a church would carry on his work after him. He called 12 apostles and gave them authority and keys to direct it. The Bible teaches that Christ is the head of the church and that its officers were given for the perfecting of the saints and for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Surely the Bible is clear on the origin of a church and the need for it now. It's a little disingenuous the way he's presented this. Both of those citations that he's giving are from Ephesians. So those were, those were written by Paul to the Ephesians. But it's ignoring the fact that nowhere in the Gospels and nowhere that we have on record did Jesus establish a church. He was born a Jew and he died a Jew. He had Jewish followers. He set apart 12 of them to be his disciples, and he called those disciples apostles. The Greek word used here, because these were originally written in Greek, apostle just means one who has been sent. So it's someone who's been sent on a mission or to do a, a particular service. And in the early Christian parlance, this really just meant someone who was sent to share the gospel that Christ taught. So they're trying to share the message that Christ taught. In Christ's life, he did not establish a church. He didn't, period. His followers, these disciples and apostles, and particularly Paul, they established these churches as they were traveling around. And this was done posthumously. There was no such thing as Christ's church that he set up. He was born a Jew and he died a Jew. So a claim like this that, uh, that Elder Oaks is making is, is just untenable. There's, we have no evidence for, for these, these claims that he's making. Ironically, this term apostle also referred to a number of women in this time as well. And these women 
who ran their own congregations of early Christianity. This is in the New Testament. There's a woman named Junia, Romans 16, 7. She's talked about a female apostle is in the New Testament. Interestingly, early Christian writers referred to Mary Magdalene as an apostle as well. There's an anonymous early Christian writer that some people attribute it to Hippolytus, who was an early Christian leader around 200 CE. In this anonymous commentary, it refers to Mary Magdalene as a female apostle, specifically mentions that God sent these female apostles to the men. In the Middle Ages, uh, Mary Magdalene was referred to as they did a feminine version of the word apostle, apostola, the title that they gave Mary Magdalene at the time. Sorry, that was a tangent. Got way off track. Back to the show. <laughs> this was a talk that kind of frustrated me quite a bit as I was listening. I'll read some of the phrases that Elder Oak says here. He says, some say that attending church meetings is not helping them. Some say, I didn't learn anything today, or no one was friendly to me, or I was offended. Personal disappointments should never keep us from the doctrine of Christ, who taught us to serve, not to be served. I recognize what he's trying to do, and it's important to shift the emphasis on serving others than being served. But this logic, just it, the, the reasoning for this just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. If you're going to church and people are offending you, and people are being mean to you at church. That's a good enough reason to stop going. It's good enough. You can give yourself permission to stop going to church if you were offended. Now, you can still believe in God, and you can still want to go to church, but maybe a different church, one where they might treat you better. But in the Mormon theology, they have vilified the idea of stopping going to church because you were offended when that is a valid reason if someone there is being mean to you you do not have to go could you imagine in any other circumstance let's say you're you've got a group of friends and you enjoy a hobby together you go to a basketball game or you go playing sports Whatever it is, imagine whatever, whatever social activity that you do. If someone in that group was actively mean to you, offending you, and not being nice, you just wouldn't go. You would make new friends. And that is a valid response to being offended. It is. And so when the church is presenting it like that's not okay, just ignore them. Because they're wrong. Just ignore Elder Oaks here, because he's wrong. It's okay to leave if you're offended. It's okay to stop going if you're not learning anymore, anything anymore. Because frankly, the Mormon church infantilizes its members. There's nothing new ever taught, and anytime any idea is presented that isn't something you could teach a child... It's quickly stamped out, or it's, it's deemed, ooh, deep doctrine, and we can't talk about that here... Well, we can't talk about it anywhere in church, and so it doesn't really matter. Every member of the Mormon church at one point in their life will have learned everything the church has to teach them. And then they can continue going and not learning anything. And that, that is not fulfilling. 
And again, if your motive for not going to church anymore is because they're not teaching you or edifying you the way they used to, that is, an, that is also a valid reason for leaving. I will say this. This line of reasoning actually agrees with a little bit of what Elder Oaks is saying, but I, I will firmly say that he is wrong in saying that those are not valid reasons to leave. But he gives an alternative. He, he presents an idea based on a conversation he has with a friend. The citation that he gives is from his own talk. He explains that another valid reason to go is to go to church with the intent of being active and making a positive difference in other people's lives. I think that's valid. If someone wants to continue participating and wants to actively be a good influence on other people, I think that's great. The next untenable claim about history that Elder Oaks makes here is in his bullet point two. He says, we of course affirm that the scriptures, ancient and modern, clearly teach the origin and need for a church directed by and with the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. We also testify that the restored church of Jesus Christ has been established to teach the fullness of his doctrine and to officiate with his priesthood authority to perform the ordinances necessary to enter the kingdom of God. That was a long sentence. <laughs> no. There never was a consensus in the Old Testament or the New Testament. They contradict each other and teach different ideas all the time. There was never one unanimous theology presented by every prophet in antiquity or today. This claim that he's making that God has led his church from the beginning of time is untenable. There's a couple of conclusions we can draw from this. But I don't think any of them are comfortable ideas for a believer in the church. In fact, the way the Mormon church has been led and has bounced back and forth on theologies and ideologies over its 200-year history, it's the exact same thing that happened in antiquity. Each new prophet or writer in the Old Testament and New Testament, Paul had different ideas than Jesus did. There isn't a unanimous voice throughout the scriptures. And there isn't even a unanimous voice in the Mormon church and their theology. This idea that he's presenting that there's a need for a God-led church. If God does exist, then definitely I agree. I agree that there's a need for someone to directly communicate with him, with God and to give this, these messages to the people. That's not what we've observed in the history of the Mormon church or in the world altogether. That doesn't mean that there weren't inspired people that had good ideas and concepts. There's never been an unchanging thread of theology ever. He goes on and he talks about worship service and, and some of their belief claims that um, worship on the Sabbath day, things like that. In Elder Oaks's closing remarks, the, the last two paragraphs, if you're reading it, he comes so close. He comes so close to getting it. And then he just kind of diverts right back into Mormon theology. He says, in closing, I remind, I remind all that we do not believe that good can be accomplished only through a church. Independent of a church, we see millions of people supporting and carrying out innumerable good works. He then explains that this is the light of Christ given to every man. 
which is fine if that's how they want to rationalize it. But I, I think it's important that they are recognizing that that groups outside of religion can do good things in the world. <laughs> but then he, he goes and he takes two steps backwards in this next paragraph. Despite the good works that can be accomplished without a church, the fullness of doctrine and its saving and exalting ordinances are available only in the restored church. It's like he almost wants to be inclusive of the rest of the world. And then he immediately says, but y'all can't get into heaven unless you're Mormon. <laughs> At least that's that's the way I'm reading this. Feels disingenuous. It makes his previous claim feel disingenuous. And this idea that the church has been restored. When they're making a statement like this. The fact that the church has continued to make changes and contradict itself in its short 200 year history. The question I would ask is which version of the Mormon church was the restored one? Is today's version the restored one or is the one that Joseph Smith presented the restored one? Which one of those is the one that will exalt you and let you get into heaven? Is it the one that practiced polygamy and excluded members from priesthood blessings? Or is it the one coming in the next hundred years that's going to be equitable to both men and women receiving the priesthood and it's going to allow marriage equality within the church and within the temple which version is it today's version or is it that future one which version is the restored gospel it's frustrating to me that they that they make claims like this right after making such a powerful statement of inclusivity just about every talk had good points and good ideas. All of these talks that had good points, but these talks also, they present ideas that can be harmful to people. And when read with a critical eye, present contradictions in the belief system. I don't want to say that a listener has to become an atheist or an agnostic or, or lose their faith in God. It's fine to believe in God and it's fine to practice your faith and have a hope in a lot of these things. The problem is, is that, that these concepts are presented in a way that they are immutable truths when they are not. These men and one woman, <laughs> misogyny, these men and one woman in this session, there were four women that spoke throughout uh, the entirety of these general conference sessions. These men and women have no more or less access to deity or spirituality than anyone else. With that is they can be mistaken just as often as you or I. The problem, as I said, is that they present these ideas as if they are capital T truths that will never, never change. I hope you enjoyed this recap and assessment of the first session of General Conference. I am planning on doing the next sessions. I hope to, I'll release them once a week for the next five weeks or so. And then it'll be back to uh, normally my normal episodes. This is kind of a mixed bag of whatever I'm thinking about. <laughs> I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. If my podcast is something that you enjoy, I would greatly appreciate likes and subscribes um, write a comment on whatever podcasting app you're using if you want to interact with me a little bit more you can find me on facebook 
uh, Rami Umptum Ruminations Facebook page and uh, shoot me a message. I post links to all of my episodes and, and I get a couple of people that comment and, and talk about their ideas about the episode. Thank you for listening today. I hope that you have an excellent day.